These readings are taken from Hebrews 11 and 12. To have faith is to be sure of the things we hope for and to be certain of the things we cannot see. It was by their faith that the people of ancient times won God's approval. It was faith that made Abraham obey when God called him to go to a strange country and faith that enabled Sarah to have children when she was old. Faith made Moses' parents hide him in the bulrushes and gave Miriam courage to wait and watch. Faith gave Moses strength to stand up to Pharaoh and lead the children of Israel out of slavery. There were others too, Joseph, Gideon, Samson, Samuel, David and many more. By faith they fought and won. They did what was right and received what God had promised to them. They were weak but became strong, even under persecution. As for us, we have this large crowd of witnesses around us. So let us get rid of everything that gets in the way. And keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, run the race that God has set before us. going to pray now. Eternal God, thank you for those who have gone before us, from ancient times right up to the present day. We think especially of those who have kept this church alive, whose lives have been an example to us all. Let us remember them and name them, either aloud or silently now. Please give us a vision for the future. Grant us wisdom and flexibility to recognise and accept the need for change. By your Holy Spirit, turn our weakness into strength. Amen. And so we find ourselves once again at the beginning of the church year. I probably ought to say Happy New Year to you, really. The beginning of Advent, the first Sunday of the new church year. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. We come before you, holy God, on this first Sunday of the new church year. This winter Sunday of a near-ended calendar year this beginning of the relentless preparation for festivity that threatens to overwhelm us as it is, uh, sorry, as we endeavour to celebrate. We come in gratitude. Gratitude for our continuing lives and for taken for granted everyday blessings. Gratitude for the freedom to meet together in the name of Christ, to worship and learn. Gratitude for the mystery of Christ's incarnation and your self-revelation through it. 
we come also in penitence. Penitence for our ingratitude and selfish, self-serving attitudes. Penitence for the way that we have abused or failed to use our freedom. Penitence for the times that we have failed to meet our own expectations, never mind your will. We come seeking refreshment and renewal. Refreshment from the weariness and world weariness that saps our strength. Renewal of the joy, hope, love and faith that will sustain us through literal and metaphorical darkness. Refreshment and renewal for our own continual discipleship in a confused and confusing world. On this day, as we seek to hold together ancient words and future promises, may we be energised afresh to continue our own journey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jeremia 14 bis 16 Es kommt die Zeit, spricht der Herr, da werde ich das Gute, das ich Israel und Judah versprochen habe, zu tun wahrmachen. In jener Zeit will ich David einen Nachkommen geben, der als gerecht bezeichnet werden wird. Er wird im ganzen Land Recht und Gerechtigkeit durchsetzen. In diesen Tagen soll Judah gerettet werden und Jerusalem in Sicherheit leben. Und die Stadt wird mit dem Namen genannt werden, der Herr ist unsere Gerechtigkeit. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous saviour. And now the second reading from Luke chapter 21. There will be signs in the sun moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful 
or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch, and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. An Sonne, Mond und Sterne werden Zeichen erscheinen, und auf der Erde werden die Völker in Aufruhr und Entsetzen sein, den Willen, Wellen und ähm, der Meere hilflos ausgeliefert. Viele Menschen werden den Mut verlieren, wenn sie diese Schrecken über die Erde hereinbrechen sehen, denn selbst die Kräfte des Himmels werden aus dem Gleichgewicht geraten. Und dann werden alle den Menschensohn mit Macht, mit großer Herrlichkeit in den Wolken des Himmels kommen sehen. Wenn, alle, wenn all das anfängt, dann richtet euch auf und hebt den Blick, denn eure Erlösung ist ganz nahe. Und, es gab, äh, und er gab ihnen folgenden Vergleich. Seht euch einen Feigenbaum an oder einen anderen Baum. Wenn die Blätter sprießen, wisst ihr, dass der Sommer kommt. Genauso könnt ihr, wenn ihr all dieses Geschehen seht, sicher sein, dass das Reich des Gottes nahe ist. Ich versichere euch, diese Generation wird nicht von der Erde verschwinden, bis diese Ereignisse eingetreten sind. Himmel und Erde werden vergehen, aber meine Worte werden für immer bleiben. Seid wachsam, lasst euch nicht von zu viel Essen und Trinken und den Sorgen des Alltags gefangen nehmen, damit euch dieser Tag nicht unvorbereitet trifft. So wie man unverhofft in eine Falle stolpert, denn dieser Tag wird über alle hereinbrechen, die auf der Erde leben. Seid wachsam und betet darum, dass ihr, wenn es möglich ist, diesen Schrecken entkommen und von dem Menschensohn stehen könnt. I don't know about you, but I think it's been lovely to hear the scriptures read for us in German by Tamara. Um, Tamara's been with us. She's just here for the term. She's really thrown herself into the life of the church, and it's just a great privilege to hear you read in your own language. So thank you. The passage that we've just heard from Luke's Gospel is an example of Jewish end times writing and stands firmly within a tradition whereby Jewish lit teachers, as their lives drew to a close, would tell their followers to expect trouble or hardship after their death. <coughs> Having devoted their lives to the teaching of this one man, having allowed his ideas to shape their thinking, Once he had gone, then the followers would be cast adrift in a world that may well prove to be hostile for them and could even treat them badly. And at one level, what we have here is Jesus doing exactly this for his followers, sensing that the end of his life is now approaching, that the die is cast, that the path to Calvary is now both inevitable and imminent. Jesus tries to prepare his followers for an unwelcome reality. Once he is gone, life will be far more difficult. Biblical scholars date the writing of all of the Gospels towards the end of the first century or early into the second century, suggesting that the words that we've heard 
were actually written down after the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 Common Era. The readers of the Gospel would be able to look back and see how some of what was written clearly related to events in their own lifetime. The generation living at the time of Jesus had not all died by the time these events happened. Indeed, for those who had experienced what happened in Jerusalem, the memory must still have been very raw. For the fledgling church dispersed throughout Judea, Samaria and Asia Minor, persecution was an ever-present reality. So maybe the words chosen to be recorded here and written under the inspiration of God's Spirit were aimed at a very specific context. As we read the New Testament today, it's really clear that the early Christians expected Jesus to return anytime soon, and that this actually served to paralyze early mission. Paul especially is very vocal in his chastisement of Christians who are either lazy, don't work, don't eat, remember that one? That's in scripture, that's Paul, I think. Or they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly use, they're just sitting around being pious and being ready for the day when Jesus comes back around the corner, rather than risking being distracted by the world around them. Passages like this one from Luke have been read and interpreted for the best part of 2,000 years as suggesting that those end times are now. That the return of Christ is imminent. It could happen tomorrow. In fact, it could happen this afternoon. It could happen halfway through this sermon. And at one level, that is absolutely true. And in another way, it's absolutely wrong. For 2,000 years, people have been mistaken because despite all their waiting and their faithfulness, he's not come back yet, has he? Not unless we all missed it. We're still here. We're still waiting. We're still trying to interpret the words. We're still trying to understand what Jesus was on about. Still sensing that something here is important but actually not quite sure what earth it has to say to us in our daily lives. The words recorded there are as true today as they ever were. The kingdom of God is nigh, is, in another language, at hand. The now and not yet reign of Christ, in which death and sin are defeated, has been inaugurated, has begun, and will find its fulfillment anytime soon. But we need to be very careful when we read these words in terms of human chronology. We get confused and misguided. We're constrained by human brains, human intellect, and human language, and we can't fully understand what this is on about, because actually, at the end of the day, in the proper meaning of the word, this is mystery. Time is a human context, a concept, a created concept. God is beyond all of that. 
Now, you know as well as I do that throughout Christian history, there have been apocalyptic sects who have devoted their time and energy to predicting the exact date and sometimes time of Christ's recall, uh, Christ's return. Sorry. Many of us here today are old enough to recall a horrendous tragedy such as Waco in 1993. People who believed they could decide the day that Jesus was coming back. And he didn't. And the consequences of mass suicide and violence, horrendous. And throughout history, the mainstream church has always viewed such sects as heretical and tried to distance themselves. So, oh, well, we know we're not like that. We treat with derision the people who calculate and recalculate the return date for Christ based on an over-literal reading of Revelation. People like the Jehovah's Witnesses who had to revise their theology when the date they chose or they'd worked out didn't come to pass. It's easy for us to look out and say, well, they're a load of heretics, aren't they? They're all hung up on these dates and times that are wrong. But we actually have to look inwards at ourselves Because there are plenty of Christians in mainstream churches who look at events in the news and say, that's a sign of the end times, and that's a sign of the end times. Because we are all equally capable of self-deluded literal readings of metaphorical texts. We have to be very careful when we're approaching scripture to try to understand what is the plain speech, what is the analogy, What is the metaphor? So, are we living in the end times? This is what people often are doing when they try to misread, or they do misread, national phenomena as some kind of divine portent. Are we living in the end times? Well, yes, we are, and and no, we're not. Yes, we are in so far as every day must bring us chronologically nearer to the end of time. But no, actually, it's not our business to know when that would be, how near or how far it is. And importantly, that there is no direct causal link we can demonstrate between the events on, her, on earth and God's cosmic intention. We cannot just make simplistic links between what we see and what God is doing. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Lionel preached for you on some of Mark's apocalyptic writing. And he was very clear. We have to be very aware of the danger of interpreting events using a framework based on a flawed eschatology. At best mistaken, at worst arrogant, an over-literal reading of these complex texts that suggests that we could possibly, perfectly, know the mind of God. There have been a lot of floods down south this week. I don't know if you've been infected by them um, in Yorkshire, but certainly where my mum lives in the Midlands, um, a lot of people have been affected by floods. Are those a sign of the end? It's a Sunday, I can't say what I'd like to. Uh, No, they're not. Are they a sign of God's displeasure? Proving that something that has taken place in England is being punished by God? I have had it said to me that this is God's punishment on England for the proposed changes in the marriage law. 
Now, I could apply an equally flawed theology and say, actually, it's God's punishment on the Church of England for not agreeing to appoint women bishops. We interpret what we want to see when we look at these things. None of us has the right to associate human suffering or sorrow with divine displeasure. How dare we? How dare we be arrogant enough to say, that is God punishing somebody or or some nation for what they've done. I'm reminded very forcibly of the words of Jesus, judge not, lest you be judged. And in that same passage, he talks about taking the plank out of our eyes and then we can begin to see the specks in other people's eyes. We must be very careful, whatever our views, not to get above ourselves. Is it perhaps the case that these floods are having the impact they have because houses have been built on floodplains? Rivers have been diverted or dammed. Drains have been allowed to become clogged with leaves or debris. I think quite possibly, yes. Human actions freely chosen. Not divine intervention and not satanic confusion. When we look out at the natural world, we've got to be very, very wary not to say, low here, low there. Earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, famines will happen. And it is possible that human greed and human sin and human finitude contribute to their impact. It's often the poorest people who suffer the most when these tragedies occur. But the end is not yet come, and God is not punishing them. If I can pinch a phrase that Lionel used the other week, even if it seems like the end of the world, it isn't. I wonder if part of the reason that it's so easy to fall into this trap of interpreting disaster or struggle in such a way is that we mistakenly understand Jesus' return as about whisking us away to eternal bliss. Rather than a more honest biblical expectation, which is not a fairy tale, about the fulfillment of the kingdom of Shalom, the perfected reign of Christ the King. I don't know about you, but it it is the third week we've kind of been looking at this kind of stuff, and I have a sense that maybe somebody is trying to tell us something. We're being forced to think how we read these passages so we can hear what God in Jesus is saying rather than just projecting our own worldview onto the texts. So perhaps we need a new framework for reading the text. Rather than this chronological sense of near as in soon, more an ontological sense, I'm using my big words this morning, as near as about close physically, as about being as about becoming. The kingdom of God is becoming. The kingdom of God is being. The kingdom of God is physically close to you. After the catalogue of natural and humanly instituted disaster, Jesus tells a little parable. Think of the fig tree and all the other trees. When you see their leaves, you know that summer is near. Tiny green shoots bursting forth with new life, new potential. And these are signs of hope. 
not signs of destruction. It might feel like doom and gloom, but this kingdom of God is already budding and beginning to grow here and now. The signs of new life that defy tragedy refuse to be overcome by the pressures to conform to the downward, gloom-ridden reading of society and of the world to which we so often fall prey. How often, as we read the scriptures, do we find images as trees and plants, as hints and glimpses of God's restorative power at work in broken lives and sinful societies? How often are trees associated with healing and wholeness in apocalyptic writings and prophecies? Even in the depths of winter, look at the trees, spot the buds, see the glimpses of green that define the cold, and dare to dream of summer when there will be full leaf and fruit for another season. More than that, If trees are somehow a symbol of the kingdom, then it isn't far away beyond the known universe, but literally and metaphorically rooted in the very stuff of creation. It's not something we sit and wait for patiently, like the number 44 bus, that's going to arrive fully formed at the end of time. But it's something that has already begun and is becoming more and more evident as time goes on. If that way of reading the scripture is correct, or at least plausible, then our challenge is not simply to stop interpreting disaster as a sign that time is running out before the world is ultimately doomed, but to remind ourselves that part of God's purpose is the redemption of all creation. And more than that, it's a call to open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to see the beginnings of that transformation. The little green shoots are already present. Or am I just delusional as well? We heard a reading from the prophet Jeremiah. When I studied Jeremiah at college, we were told to read it through in one go. That was very cruel of our Old Testament tutor. I got to um, chapter 22 and was trying to work out where the highest building in Manchester was. It is a very depressing read. And yet, we get these glimpses of something amazing. In all that stuff of Jeremiah, which is a desperately, desperately sad book, we get this little glimpse, this little green shoot that heralds the inbreaking of a new season. God says, I will fulfill my promise to you. I will choose a king who is righteous, who will ensure justice throughout the land, and the people will dwell in a city of safety. Isn't that a beautiful image in all the doom and gloom that they were living with. Now, of course, we read this prophecy as pointing to Jesus, the descendant of David. And maybe we hear Jerusalem in the light of the vision in Revelation when all things are made new. But perhaps also it is a sign of the times. A hint that even when it seems like everything is lost, even when it seems that evil holds sway, even when we just feel it's beyond belief, that already this new kingdom is at hand. It's nigh. It's near. 
not just chronologically, but spiritually and physically. And I'll leave you with a question, because I'm like that. I wonder what are the hints and glimpses you see that show the kingdom of Christ is breaking in like tiny little leaves on otherwise stark, empty trees. Go anywhere, any public event, a football match, the Olympics or whatever, and you will find somebody holding up a poster that says John 3.16. It's one of the most amazing and misunderstood verses in the Bible. It tells us why Jesus came to earth. Not to condemn the earth or creation, but to redeem it all. Our world is broken, that's a fact. Human sin and greed and finitude have their consequences for all people, good and bad, in all times and all places. But Christ came to redeem all of that. Our prayers of intercession this morning are taken from the Baptist worship book called Gathering for Worship. There is a response and it is printed on the sheet, so you haven't got to worry about learning it. When I say the words, in the lives of those we love, in the life of our land, in the lives of those in need, would you join me in saying, your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. Let us pray together. Gracious God, rejoicing in your blessings, trusting in your loving care for all, we bring our prayers for the world. We pray for the created world, for those who rebuild where things have been destroyed, for those who fight hunger, poverty and disease, for those who have power to bring change for the better and to renew hope. In the life of our world, your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. We pray for our country, for those in leadership who frame our laws and shape our common life, who keep the peace and administer justice, for those who teach and those who heal for all who serve the community. In the life of our land, your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. We pray for people in need, those for whom life is a bitter struggle, those whose lives are clouded by death or loss, by pain or disability, by discouragement or fear, by shame or rejection. In the life of those in need, your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. We pray for those in the circle of friendship and love around us. 
children and parents, sisters and brothers, friends and neighbours. And for those especially in our own thoughts today. In the lives of those we love, your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. We pray for the church in its stand with the poor, in its love for the outcast and the ashamed, in its service to the sick and the neglected, in its proclamation of the gospel in this land and in this place. In the life of your church, your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. Eternal God, hear these our prayers, spoken and silent, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be your praise and glory forever. Amen. We have surely been blessed by God. Blessed with material wealth and security. Blessed with the community of faith. Blessed by what we have shared this day. Let us, therefore, go from here, renewed and refreshed, both to see and to be signs of the inbreaking kingdom of Christ's shalom. Mm-hmm.